Good morning. A little bit of an emotional wreck here this morning, so we'll just hang with me. I, uh, I, I read this book recently, and, and, and it said that it mentioned the scripture where the, uh, the, these angelic creatures are, are, are circling the throne of God, and they have eyes all over, and they sing all day and all night. They just repeatedly sing, holy, holy, holy. And, and, this, and this author said that uh, if we were to receive word of God from them, that would become the standard that we would refuse to accept anything less than that. And man, you, you know, you come into a place like today and, you know, I, I never know what to expect coming in here. And uh, boy, God's presence just meets us here. And it almost, you know, it almost feels like for me, like how could I come up here and say anything that would do anything less than just retract from what God's presence can do, you know? There's just something that happens in intimacy that just you just can't you can't get from teaching and you can't get from from anything else. There's just something that happens in intimacy that's that's real where where the Lord just becomes real. And he meets us here when we uh when we come here after him, when we desire his presence. And, and uh, when these guys were warming up for worship this morning, uh, there was just a few people in here, but you know, there, was already, there was already prayer and worship happening even in their, in their practicing. And, uh, and I think that the Lord sees that, and, and, he, and he meets us. He meets us. There's, God will give you as much of himself as you desire. He really will. He'll meet you right where you are. He'll give you as much of, of himself as you desire. There's no end to his goodness and there's no end to his glory. And, uh, and, and so if you, if you experience that in here today and you wonder what that is, uh, there's more of that. There's more of that. Let's pray today. Lord, we're thankful that, uh, that you meet us here, God, that your presence is real and it's tangible, God. And Lord, we're thankful that, that you uh the Lord, even in our brokenness, that you don't uh you don't look at us as less than worthy of your glory, Lord, that you you still died for us, that you still want to interact with us, Lord, that you still want to shower us with your love and your goodness, God. Lord, we just surrender this time to you. We surrender our hearts to you. I surrender my voice to you, Lord. Holy Spirit, there's just there is there's nothing that that I could say on my own accord that would be worth anything, Lord. So so we ask that you would just uh, that you would take it from here, Lord. We just surrender this to you. We love you in Jesus' name, Amen. Oh, let me pull myself together here. My uh, my message title today is is substantial faith. And uh, the Lord spoke this, this word substantial to me, and I, and I looked up the definition, not because I didn't know what substantial meant, but because I wanted to see what the definition says. There was three definitions, and I thought they were all pretty juicy, so we're going to use all three of them. The first one's of considerable importance, size, and worth. 
The second is concerning the essentials of something. And the third is real and tangible rather than imaginary. So what we're talking about today is we're talking about faith that's of considerable size, importance, and worth. We're talking about faith that is concerning the essentials of who we are, the basics of who we are. And we're talking about faith that's real and tangible rather than imaginary. Should have been more prepared and actually had my my scriptures ready here. I got them ready. I'm going to start here uh, just reading in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And this is what it says. When, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and, no, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from work is dead. This, is, this can be a challenging scripture to uh, read, comprehend, and to put into action. And But what James is saying here is he's saying that our faith is substantiated, our faith is given substance by the way that we act on our faith. This isn't negating the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, but that our yes to the Father's call to come is substantiated by our actual coming. (laughs) If I were to tell you that I had secret knowledge of what the winning lottery numbers were tomorrow, you, whether or not you believe me would be substantiated by whether or not you actually go buy a lottery ticket. You can say, I believe you. And the next day, if you didn't buy a lottery ticket, I would say, you should have believed me, right? You didn't believe me. And that's what James is saying here. Is he's saying that our yes to the Father's call to come is substantiated. It's given evidence in our actual coming in our actual following. When our faith is given substance by our actions, it's made tangible and it becomes identifiable to the world. And God knows that we need faith that's identifiable to the world today. (laughs) Maybe more than ever, man. Maybe more than ever. We need faith. The church needs to have a faith that's identifiable 
to the world. I, I read this book. I think I shared this with you guys a few months ago. I read this book called The Insanity of God, and this guy goes to all these places where the church has been persecuted and yet still thrives. And he was interviewing um, these leaders of the underground uh, church of China, and he asked them, if I were to go to your communities and ask the people in your communities that aren't part of your church who you people are, what would they say? And the people responded quickly and said, they would say, we are the people that raise people from the dead. Their faith is given substance. Their faith is given substance and it's identifiable. They are set apart. They are really set apart. I think that what God is, part of what God is calling us to in, in this time is he's calling the lines that have been blurred to be made definitive again. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what Jesus is saying here is that intimacy or that action without intimacy is meaningless. Action without intimacy is meaningless. So, so knowing that, knowing that action without intimacy is meaningless, what, the, what this essentially means is that uh, the motives of our actions define whether our actions are classified as righteousness to God or as lawlessness to God. Because these guys... In the scripture, these people that are saying, Lord, Lord, these are people that have done things that, that are similar to what the disciples would have done. But God calls it lawlessness, and he calls the disciples' actions righteousness, the same actions. And then that's because the motives behind the actions, the heart behind the actions, is what identifies that thing as righteousness or lawlessness. So if, if, if action without intimacy is meaningless and faith without works is dead, then the question is, how do we develop a faith that's both true and substantial? How do we develop a faith that is pure at heart and worth, worth something of, of, of considerable importance, size, and worth? How do we put action to our faith and it not be an insult to God how do we have substantial faith without pursuing things or actions rather than pursuing the heart of God? So there are three marks of what I would consider true substantial faith. This is, these are three things that I would classify as characteristics of substantial faith. Faith that is worth something. Faith that is valuable, that's essential to the, the center of who you are being. Faith that is real and tangible. The first one is faith that is rooted in intimacy. Psalms chapter 20, 27 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. 
of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David wrote this psalm. It's believed that he wrote this psalm in the beginning parts of his life, most likely during the time when he was in flight from King Saul. David had been anointed as the king of Israel, but he hadn't yet been appointed as the king of Israel. He had been prophesied that he is the one to follow King Saul as the king of Israel. And then he finds himself in a position because Saul, of Saul's jealousy, he finds himself in a position where he's living in caves in enemy territory, running from King Saul and his army as they're trying to catch him to kill him. He's running from the army that he is anointed to lead. <laughs> And as he's hiding in caves, as he's running, this is what he has to say about that. He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to choir in his temple. What David is saying, he's saying, I don't care about the crown and I don't care about the throne. I don't care about the influence. I don't care about having an army at my side. I don't care about any of that. What I desire and the only thing that I will spend all of my days seeking after is the presence of God. What, what intimacy with God develops inside of you is a fear of the Lord. A holy fear of God. And David's son, Solomon... He wrote in Proverbs 9.10, he said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And I have to wonder if Solomon's seen that in his dad. He's seen what intimacy developed in his dad and that what intimacy in developed in his dad, which was a fear of the Lord that drowned out all other fears. In Acts chapter 9, there's a man named Saul and he has... Uh, he has spent his life as a Pharisee per, per, persecuting Christians, arresting and killing Christians. Actually, the first uh, uh, evidence we have of, of, of 
a martyr, a Christian martyr, a Stephen, and the scripture says that Paul, Saul, as a young man, was the one that gave approval. And Saul's on his way to Damascus, and he has an encounter with the presence of Jesus. He has an encounter with Jesus. And this encounter with Jesus melts him to his face and blinds him for three days. They lift him up and they, and they lead him into Damascus where he was going. And the Lord speaks to a man named Ananias. And this is what he says to him. The Lord said to him, this is Acts chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. and He has seen, he has seen a vision He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might again regain his sight. Saul has an encounter with the presence of God and immediately he is led into an intimate moment with God. Three days of fasting and prayer. The scripture says that he doesn't eat or drink anything. He spent three days in fasting and prayer. So a ministry that would eventually change the scope of Christianity, that would, that would change thousands of people's lives. There, there would be teachings from, from Paul that was going to be read still to this day until, until Jesus restores everything. These teachings of Paul were started with an encounter, they were birthed in an encounter, and they were developed in intimacy. And that's a recipe for success. That's a recipe for substantial faith. Faith that is birthed in encounter, that's developed in intimacy. If you're wondering what the Lord wants you to do, find yourself on your face before God. Because that's what he wants you to do. I have been uh, having these uh, dreams lately, and these dreams have been spiritually significant. And... uh, Normally, if I have a weird dream or something like that, I would send it to Emma, and then she would send it off to the, the dream team. That, I just gave him that name. I just thought that was good. I take credit for that one, Holy Spirit. I take credit for that one. Now, I send it off to Emma, and then she sends it out to them, and sometimes we'll get like some cool interpretation back. But I've had a couple of dreams recently that uh, ha- I haven't n- much needed to send it out to the dream team because the Lord has just, they've been just clear just extremely clear. And this one, first one is kind of weird, but just hang with me because there's spiritual relevance to this. And Emma's going to get uncomfortable back there. But I had this dream that Emma had basically come to me and told me that she didn't want to be physically intimate with me anymore. She was bored. I know. Talk about a bad dream for a husband to have. I'm telling you, it was a nightmare. It was actually an absolute nightmare. But I had this dream, and, and that, was, that was just the basis of my dream. And um, obviously, you know, in the dream, I was upset, but I was upset because it's like, this is a part of, this is a part of what God has blessed in our marriage. God has, God has developed, he has created this for a marriage as a part of intimacy. And, um, and it, was just, it was just heavy. And I woke up, I sent this, this dream to Emma, and she said, well, that is exactly something that I had been talking to her about, not specifically that. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to show you. I'm going to take you there, okay? I'm going to show you what I mean by this. Uh, because there's this word that has been just constantly on my heart as, as, as the Lord was basically showing me that it's a struggle of, 
of our generation, or, or it's, the, it's the ball and chain of our, our generation spiritually, and it's the word apathy. And apathy is, to like, is basically to recognize the, the reality of something, but to deem it insignificant, non-important. And what, what God was showing me in this dream was that there are a lot of um, Christians that have said to God, I, don't, I want to be a Christian, I, want, I believe in you, but I don't want any part of the intimacy. Keep the weird stuff away from me. Spiritual gifts, don't talk to me about it. Weird. I don't want the intimacy. Don't ask me to pray for somebody. That's weird. And what, what, what God was showing me, what the Holy Spirit was showing me in this dream is that, that he is desiring in the season to lead people out of apathy and into intimacy. That, that intimacy is the healing for apathy. That when we find ourselves in the presence of God, he will heal that apathy in our spirit. When we, when we seek the presence of God and we seek intimacy with the Father, that, that it will develop a, a fear of the Lord inside of us and, and it will heal that apathy and we will have an appetite for intimacy. I remember being about, I was about 20 years old, and I, I lived with uh, my brother. I'd moved in with my brother and a bunch of our friends, and we were relatively good people. You know, we, did, we weren't like partying or anything like that. It was just, it was just, we lived in this house, and there was always like 25 people at the house because we, it was my brother, me, and four of our friends, well, three of our friends that lived in this house together, and there was just always people there. And we, were, we, at the time, we had started going to this church up in Austin Town, and, um, and, and naturally what happened is the people that were living with us started to come with us. They weren't churched. It was just me and my brother that were churched. Um, but they started just naturally coming with us. And before we knew it, because there was always just literally so many people at our house, I mean, it was just nothing for me to come home from work one day, and there was 20 people at our house. It was just, that was just normal. And kind of what happened was we found ourselves to, we were in this place where we were literally taking like four or five carloads full of young people to church on Sundays from Columbia all the way to Austin town. And my younger cousin, he was, uh, he played football for Crestview at the time. And, and so he would bring over to our house, he would bring all of his friends and, and, and I remember sitting in, in the church service one time and looking down the row, and there was just an entire row of Crestview Letterman's coats of, of practically like 20 football players from Crestview that were high school that had, had found themselves in, in, in that church. And kind of this, you know, it was weird. There wasn't really an explosion moment where things changed, but I look back and I know that there's not many of them that are following Jesus anymore. And, the, and I think that the reason for that is because the, the foundation wasn't established. The foundation wasn't established as intimacy. So naturally, life happens, and it doesn't have to be a massive storm that comes and, and stirs everything up. Naturally, life happens, and people just kind of fall away because they've built their house on, on sand, and the rain comes, and it doesn't have to be a massive flood rain. It doesn't have to be a tsunami. It's just a little bit gentle rain by gentle rain that a house gets washed away. And I think it's massively, massively important 
that we have, have established a foundation of intimacy because that foundation of intimacy is what will lead us into the second thing, which, which I think is a uh, mark of true and substantial faith, and that is faith that endures. Immediately, I think of Abraham, because Abraham was 75 years old when God told him that he was going to have, him and Sarah were going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He was 75. It already seemed impossible. Like, at the beginning of the promise, it seemed impossible. And then Abraham waited 25 years. But his faith endured. He trusted God. And then after he had Isaac... Isaac is a, is a young boy, and God goes to him and says, now I want you to take him up the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham, on his way up the mountain, at one point he stops his servants and said, you guys stay here. Me and the boy are going to continue on, and then we will return. He says, we will return. And here's why. Because he, God, Abraham trusted God's promise. Trusted God's promise so much that it seemed inconventional, impossible that God was going to have, have Abraham lead his son up a mountain, kill his son, and then all, out of Isaac is going to come descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky. So here's what Abraham knew. If God takes him up this mountain and has him kill his son, sacrifice his son, that God will raise his son from the dead and lead them both back down the mountain. Because his faith endured. He trusted God. And, his, and the scripture says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. I've done a lot of, of studying on um, the persecuted church, the early church. And, and when you read the stories of these people, as their faith is tested, how they endure, that is substantial faith to me. When your faith is going to lead you to persecution, when your faith is going to lead you to prison, and you say yes anyway, that is substantial. And, and, and we may not, you may not ever come to a place where, where, where your faith is going to lead you to prison, but it may lead you into being made fun of. Will your faith endure? It may lead you to lose a job. Will your faith endure? I, I just watched this video this, this, past, uh, this past week, and this, and this teacher was uh, talking on the Zoom meeting to these uh, other teachers, and she was basically telling them, if you don't adopt to our way of thinking, we're working to fire you. And, and, and what she was talking about was this thing called critical race theory, and I'm not going to get into the depths of it other than to tell you that it's basically identifying, identifying everybody in culture as either oppressor or victim, and, and that is based on the color of your skin, and there's no way out of it. You are either one or the other, and, and, it, is, and it is against the will of God. It's against what God calls you because he calls us sons and daughters of God. No matter what the color of your skin is, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But what she was saying is she's saying if you don't adopt to, to our way of thinking, you're going to be fired. I'm telling you that we're coming into times where that may be the case. That may be the case. Will your faith endure then? Will you trust God through that? Will you say yes to God through that? The third mark of true substantial faith 
is faith that offends. This one was a little weird. I'll, I, I wish I, I'll show you my notebook here because I fought the Holy Spirit on this one. I had a little scratch out mark here because I didn't want to say that. Because the Holy Spirit had spoken this to me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to show you what I mean by this, but the Holy Spirit has spoken this faith that offends to me, and I said, oh, I don't like offending people. So I'm going to cross that out, and I'm going to put faith that fights. I put faith that fights. That sounds better, right? And then I sat there for five minutes while the Holy Spirit said, I didn't say faith that fights. I said faith that offends. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Pastor Jeff mentioned this earlier. Jesus feeds 5,000 with a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish. And then the disciples get in this boat and they start over, the, over to Capernaum and Jesus stays behind. And the people that had been fed, they see that Jesus had stayed behind. The disciples had gone over on this boat. They knew that this was the only boat. And, um, and in the morning, they wake up. They recognize that the boat has, is still gone, meaning the disciples had left for Capernaum. And they, and they assumed they couldn't find Jesus. So they assumed that by some miraculous manner, he had made his way over to Capernaum too. So they all hop in their boats, and they're going after him. They're going to find Jesus. And they go over to Capernaum, and then, and then they find Jesus in Capernaum. And this is Jesus' response to him in John chapter 6, verses 26. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me not because you've seen signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Here's what he is essentially saying to these people that have crossed over looking for him. You have... You aren't seeking me because you've seen signs and believe in me. You're seeking me because you've seen signs and they filled your belly. You liked that, that, you liked that emotional feeling that you got when you've seen that miracle. And that's why you're seeking me, not because you actually believe in me. Not because you have any interest in following me. And here's how Jesus proves his point. He starts talking about um, the bread of life. The bread of life, and, he, and this is how he explains it. He says, anybody who desires to have everlasting life has to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And that sounds like a harsh way of saying that. If I was there, I would have probably been like, oh man, Jesus. I, like, I would have went a little gentler, maybe with a different analogy, you know what I'm saying? Because that's going to stir some people up. But Jesus didn't care. Jesus wasn't there to sugarcoat things. He wasn't there to make things gentle for them. He was there to give them the truth. And he's saying, he's saying you, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they needed it every day, but I have something for you that's, that's eternally satisfying, that's eternally purposeful, and it's my body and it's my blood. And then in John chapter 6, starting verse 60, this is, this is the response. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is hard saying, who can hear it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense to this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is, in, it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are a spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew, that the, knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus speaks all this stuff, and what happens? The people that had come to follow him turned around and said, we're not walking with you anymore. Because that offends us. And Jesus turns to, to his disciple, his 12, and says, are you going to leave as well? And they said, where are we going to go? Because their faith was substantial. They, 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 said, they said, where are we going to go? Because they say, if you're, we know who you are. So whether or not this offends us doesn't matter. Because you say it's true, it has to be true. So we'll follow you. We may not understand this, but we're in. We'll follow you. We may not understand this, but we'll abide by it because you say it. I had this other dream on Tuesday night. And in this, in this dream, um, me and Emma and Easy had got in our truck and we were driving up to the end of our road and it was nighttime and we got to the top of this hill at the end of our road and there was a line of protesters out in front of us. And, um, and they were blocking the road and they were, um, um, I didn't, you know, I don't, in the dream, I didn't know what they were protesting, but I was like, I could, I could tell in my spirit that they were against me. So I was kind of like uncomfortable when I backed up and I turned around and we went back home. And when we got home, we went to the back door of my house and covering the back door of our house with a blanket. And I knew that the police had come and they had hung, hung blankets over our doors in order to keep people out of our house. And I just kind of moved the blanket out of the way and unlocked the door and we went in. And then I was walking uh, around inside the house and I was making sure everything was secure. And I went to the front door and there was a blanket hanging over the front door as well. That was the what... That was all there was, and I could see a hand kind of pushing through the blanket from the outside. Then I could see like a face kind of pushing through the blanket from, from the outside. And actually at one point, Easy went up and touched it, and I kind of like pushed him back because he, he didn't know what was going on. And I kind of pushed him back, and next thing I know, this, the blanket lifts up, and there was these two women that are kind of crouched down looking underneath this blanket. And I went up to them, and I crouched down and I started to talk to them. And I was kind of trying to just small talk. What I was basically trying to do is I was just trying to establish some type of common ground. I'm going to make them like, like me so they're going to leave us alone. That's what I was basically trying to do. And so I'm just small talking so much to the point, what do you do when you small talk? You start talking about the weather. That's what I did. I looked out and I could see that it was snowing and I said, wow, it's crazy that it's snowing because yesterday it was like 75 degrees. And the, and the one woman said, yeah, it's cold. Can I come in and get warm? And I said, well, I, I got a little like, nervous and I should have said that. Well, that was dumb small talk. But I was like, I was like, well, I would, but I have to put easy to bed so I can't, I can't let you in. And she just lifts up the blanket anyway, and her and this other woman, they come into the house. So then I'm really uncomfortable, because there's these two women, and Emma and Easy are in there, and I know that they're in our house, in our house um, with bad intentions. I know that they're not there to get warm, that they had used that as an excuse to get into the house, but now they're in the house, and I'm nervous. So I, I kind of had... Uh, I had kind of snuck around the wall, and I went up the stairs, and I was going up the stairs... Um, to get my gun. 
And the end of this dream is I was just tucking my gun into my waistband and I was going back downstairs. In my mind, I'm thinking by force or whatever, these people are leaving my house. And I woke up and I texted this to Emma and literally as I sent it to Emma, the Holy Spirit showed me what he was trying to tell me in this dream. Because uh, sometimes we set up soft barriers to sin and 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 we try our best not to be offensive to sin. So we put up these soft barriers like the police had hung blankets, and it's an illusion of a barrier and not a real barrier. It's an illusion. It's a soft barrier. And then when the woman lifted up the barrier and I crouched down, I started to try to create common ground with, with, with them rather than saying, this is my house and you're not coming in. And what the Holy Spirit was showing me is that sometimes we set up soft barriers. We avoid hard things because we don't want to offend somebody. But the gospel is offensive to sin. The gospel, the true gospel, will always be offensive to sin. So if, if, if somebody preaches something and you can track it back to Scripture and you're offended by it, you should find out why you're offended by it because it's probably the sin inside of you gripping onto your heart saying, oh, no, 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 don't listen to that. Don't listen to that. Be offended by that. Don't listen to that. And, and I, think, I think, listen, I think that what's happened over a, over a long time, what's happened is... Um, Satan has waged war over our younger generation. Satan is waging war over our younger generation. And God is calling us to the fight. And part of being called to the fight is being bold enough to speak the truth of Scripture. Here's just an example. This is just an example of of the way that Satan is, is... at war in our culture. Here's what Satan does with sin. He starts off by saying, it's not a big deal. It's okay, it's not a big deal. And then after you've become comfortable with it's not a big deal, then he goes to, you know what, this is actually good. This is something that you should be proud of. This is, this is good. And then after you've become comfortable with this is good, then he goes to, this is your identity. This is who you are. And once it becomes, this is who you are, this is your identity, then it becomes harder to strip off. Then that sin becomes harder to get rid of. And, and, and it's not a coincidence that we find ourselves in a culture where things are preached like gender identity and sexual identity because Satan is at work in those things. And he's taken what, he, what God calls sin. He's taken what God has called something that will lead you away from, keep you from God's goodness and God's will in your life. He's taken those things that God has called sin, and he started off calling them, okay, it's not a big deal. And then he started saying, you know what, this is good. You should be proud of this. And now he's saying, this is your identity. And anybody that has ever told you that your identity is anything other than a child of God, that made, is made in the image of God, is an absolute lie. I'm a husband and I'm a dad, but that's not my identity. 
I'm a child of God. And I could never be a good husband or a good dad unless I know who my identity is. Unless I am a child of God, I'm not going to be a good dad. I'm not going to be a good husband. I'm not going to be a good employee. I'm not going to be a good pastor. None of those things are my identity. This is not part of my notes. Sorry, whoever's up there, I can't see. You, I'm, Dave, this is my awkward, you can come up or whatever. <laughs> Dave asked me to, to, to give him a look or something like that. I said, I'll make it, make it awkward for you. Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My question to you is, are you wrestling? Are you even in the fight? Because it doesn't say we're not wrestling. It just says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. But we are wrestling against spiritual powers, spiritual forces. So the question is, are you wrestling? Are you in the fight? Is your faith substantial? Is it worth anything to you? Are you willing to stand your ground? Are you willing for the Lord to, to set distinctive lines in your life? Are you will, willing to let God convict your spirit by his word? Are you, allowed to, are you gonna allow yourself to follow him no matter what? When you don't understand, you're gonna follow him. When he leads you up mountains that seem completely against what he, what he, what he has um, promised you, are you willing to go still? Is your faith substantial? Is it rooted in intimacy? Is it enduring tests? And is it offensive to sin? As the Lord put this message on my heart, as the Holy Spirit spoke this into me, I can't help but think, man, our word for this year is set apart. And the Lord means it. It's just, this isn't just a, this isn't just a cool saying. It's not just a fancy word. It's a reality that the Lord is calling us into. He's calling us to be identifiable by our faith. Be recognizable by our faith. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you set us apart, God. That it's only by you and your spirit, Lord. Lord, we're thankful that your presence meets us here. And we pray that you would give us the courage to give you everything. Lord, when our, when our faith is substantial, when it is offensive to sin, Lord, we, we pray that you would just give us the courage to stand on it anyway. Lord, change us and shape us, God. Take more of us, Lord. Set us apart, God. We love you in Jesus' name.
Amen.